0: This morning is a day we've been looking forward to for a long time around here, and uh, we're going to be kind of rolling out uh, a vision for the next season of uh, life at Antioch. And uh, we're going to be, as a church, turning 11 this fall in about a month, and uh, and so we are on one hand celebrating uh, all that God has done in and through this church over the last 11 years. And especially celebrating all of you who have been part of this thing, and, uh, and at the same time looking forward to what do we believe God is, is calling us to as a church, and uh, how might we go about better pursuing uh, that vision that he's given us. And so, um, so we're going to take time this morning during the sermon to, uh, to basically roll out this, this, uh, this new vision for our church and to invite you uh, to come along on this journey with us. So for me, in many ways, this journey goes back way before my time at Antioch. I've only been here almost three years. Um, but 11 years ago, right when uh, Ken and, and the core group here was getting this going, I was starting a church in Corvallis called Doxology and uh, Ke- that's how Ken and I first met. Um, we came out of sort of the same shoot of church planters and had some similar mentors and financial backers and that sort of thing, and so while you guys were getting going here, I was getting going over on the rainy side, and uh, and it was really um, a season of trying to, in some ways, rediscover the heartbeat for the church, and it was becoming clear at that point in time that the world had changed significantly. And uh, these days, people that pay attention to these sort of things will, will pretty consistently say that we're now living in a largely post-Christian society, right, as a shift from 50 years ago or so, where it was kind of assumed that if you lived in this country, you kind of uh, were a Christian, or at least the God that you felt bad about not following was the Christian God, right? Um, The shift has been over the last couple decades uh, towards a largely post-Christian society. And so the question comes, what does it look like to be the church, to be the people of God, to be the family of Jesus in an environment that no longer shares some of the same... Um, assumptions and beliefs and values uh, that we do as as Christians and so that was really how we started our church in Corvallis in a lot of ways how Antioch started as well as a reimagining of what would it look like to be faithful uh, to this call to be the church and for me it became really clear early on that at the essence of what the church is the identity that we have received from God is a missional identity. And another way to put it is that the church exists to be a missionary to the culture that it's in. And so the task of a missionary, and we have a category for that that may or may not be helpful. You may think about guys in suits with name tags knocking on your door or something like that. But traditionally, a a missionary simply means a sent one. It means somebody that God raises up and sends to a particular place or a particular people to bring the gospel, to bring the good news of of Jesus to that place and to those people. And in a post-Christian society, the call for the church to be a missionary, to see herself primarily through this lens of mission is, is more important than ever. And so in Corvallis, that took some really... Interesting expressions, we decided instead of meeting in a church building or a school, we were going to meet in the sketchiest dance club in town place called Platinum, it was downstairs in downtown Corvallis. I've told you about it before, it smelled terrible. If the beeves happened to have won the night before, which doesn't happen often, but if it did, it smelled especially bad. We had to wipe down the leather couches in the VIP lounge to turn that into our nursery. We had to unscrew the stripper pole to set up the communion table in front of the stage, like, it was a gnarly experiment. But for us, it wasn't just like what would be cool or edgy. The idea was that it was really biblically and theologically driven around this idea of incarnation, that central to the message of the gospel is that God has become one of us, that God in Jesus has entered into our world to live amongst us. And so he's not just calling us away to come to him, but in his love, he comes to us. And so we thought, what would it look like, t- instead of trying to get people to come to church, what if we tried to get the church to go to the people, right? So that was just one expression of that, of that idea of gospel and incarnation. And over the last 11 years, as Ken and I have both been kind of figuring out or trying to figure out how to, how to lead faithful expressions of the church, the world has changed even more. But be- behind, behind it all continues to be this deep conviction that when Jesus, in, his, in some of his parting words to his disciples, says, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. Right? And we understand that to be, in large part, a commission that we are still invited to be part of as well. As the Father sent the Son to come and live amongst us on earth, now the Son sends us his people, to go be his body, to go be his physical representation in the world, and to show the world who God is and what God's like in his love and in his justice and in his peace and in his truth. And so we'll start the conversation simply by acknowledging that we as a church are an expression of God's mission in the world and the work that we have to do constantly in a changing world is ask what is this gospel what is this good news and what does it look like for us to faithfully make disciples that are going to be able to live that out in a way that the watching world notices. So that's what I've been up to for the last 11 years. Ken what have you been up to?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Morning everybody. Um, One of the reasons I thought it'd be great if if Pete shared a little bit of his story going back um, way before Antioch, we actually started our church churches in the same month. So October 2016 is, is when both those churches got started. And we were a part of a group of guys or a movement, like Pete was saying, that we're, we're doing things a little different than, than what you would do primarily as just a pastor. We were church planters. And what that meant was that we weren't just coming into an existing church and saying, how do I fit within this culture and then manage with regard to the staff and the congregation? But we were taking on the responsibility to wrestle and to try and discern what kind of culture should we actually be creating? And then how do we grow or nurture that culture into expression? And so a lot of the guys like us that were reading books and thinking along these ways as church planters back then, Uh, We're being influenced by a guy by the name of Leslie Newbegin. And so Leslie Newbegin was a missionary for most of his life in India, uh, and then had gone back to England and had this kind of crazy realization that as a missionary, my whole life trying to bring the gospel into a place that that isn't a Christian uh, environment, when he finally went back to his sending country, he realized it had culturally all the same marks of the place where he had been as a missionary. And so it kind of created this revolution of of changing the way we think, not as kind of we are a Christian nation that sends out missionaries, but we are Christians in a nation that we have to reach. Does that make sense? And so the job of every Christian then begins to look a lot like uh, what does it mean to be a missionary, to be a witness? Right here as well as, as that extends kind of outward. And so, one of the reasons we took the name Antioch was because it's the first church in the New Testament you see where, where this whole idea of a new culture gets born. That, that Paul was working with two different or several different ethnic groups and saying, what does it mean for these people to have community when before this, they actually didn't even share meals together? In fact, he had to write to Jerusalem for permission to kind of baptize this new way of doing church where Gentiles and Jews and and Romans and the like would actually be able to share a fellowship meal together. And so you're, at this point, creating a new culture. And Paul would say that uh, he was a Jew to the Jew, a Greek to the Greek, a Roman to the Romans. He became all things to all people that he might win some. That grace, kind of the New Testament, now extended to everyone. And so we were wrestling with what does it mean to start a church um, as Pete was. And by the way, Pete and I began this conversation about him coming to Antioch at a gathering of the church planters that we're in a network with. Um, just sitting around one evening and saying, what would this look like? And the desire and hunger for me was that there would be somebody else in this church that carried a deep sense of mission and calling around what this, this should or, or could look like. And then I didn't know at the time that that, that would move forward. Um, and, uh, and I could say a couple other things just about the blessing that that's been, I think, to this community and to the staff and to where we're going. But, but the idea here is that we were trying to contextualize in Antioch, was trying to contextualize in to a very interesting particular culture, a world. Uh, The gospel never changes, but but the world never stops changing. I think you said that. Um, But uh, the gospel never changes, but, uh, but the world never stops changing. So when we planted this church in 2006, we were trying to situate ourselves within a culture and speak the natural language to that culture that if you go plant a church in China, you speak Chinese. If you plant a church in Indonesia, you sp- what Indonesian? Probably, probably Indonesian. <laughs> if you if you plant a church in in Bend, Oregon, in 2006, you what you want to speak the mother tongue, right? Like you want to understand what that culture is, and so. Um, the arguments that had always been about style a generation earlier, which style of music is it going to be, or which kind of way are we going to do this church thing, had progressed a little bit to going, what do we actually think about art? And what do we actually think about culture? And what do we actually think about social justice or how we engage into the world around us with the poor or the vulnerable, that that it had gone a little bit beyond the conversations inside the church walls and speaking very much to what that conversation was outside the church walls. So it's been 11 years. I just want to give you a little bit. In 2006, uh, when we planted Antioch, there had just been the Amish school shooting. You guys remember that? Um, Ted Haggard, three weeks after we planted this church, had come out with his giant sex scandal, and it changed the way a lot of people saw the word evangelical. That happened November 2006. Saddam Hussein uh, was sentenced to, to die three weeks after our church began in 2006. Um, crocodile, the crocodile hunter, what was his name? Steve Irwin. Steve Irwin uh, was killed um, swimming uh, off the shores, if you guys remember that. It was in 2006. Uh, Enron happened in 2006. Uh, that was 2006. Um, also in 2006, uh, MySpace overtook Google as the most visited site on the Internet. Um, Continuing on, Uh, right now there are 400 hours of video uploaded to YouTube every minute. Just five years ago, that was 24 hours per minute. Um, Extreme poverty five years ago uh, was 20% of the global population. It's 9% now, cut in half if you haven't been following that. Interesting thing, the number of dresses sold per minute on eBay. Uh, just five years ago, it was only six, and now it's 90. That's how uh, Elon Musk can be doing all that he's doing with Tesla in Cars, the founder of eBay. Uh, um, Seventeen million people now um, stay in the home, uh, the home of strangers through something called Airbnb that uh, wasn't even around but a number of years ago. In 2006, uh, there was no Twitter, there was no Instagram, uh, there was no Airbnb, uh, and um, Trump was still a guy who had failed at the USFL. Um, a lot has changed in, in uh, 10, 11 years. So it's this really interesting question to say if we have fixed values and our values never change and the gospel is always the same but how do we translate that in into a mother tongue in the culture in the society into the city that we're in and so it's kind of fun as we try and codify a vision that has always been there but to really stamp it in a new and unique way and so that's kind of where we begin is just the change
0: change <clears throat> And so when we start asking this question, what what is the mission that God's given us as a church in a world that's constantly changing, but being faithful to a gospel and to a savior uh, who's who's always the same? Um, The question of mission doesn't start with us, but it starts with God. And what is God up to in the world? At one point, Jesus told his followers, my father is always at his work. God's doing something in the world. He's not. Sometimes we have a picture of him just kind of waiting off in heaven somewhere, kind of passively observing what's happening in the world and we wonder why he's not more involved. We don't always know what he's up to, but Jesus says he's always at his work. God is doing something in the world. And that's really the story of the Bible, starting in, in the act of creation, God speaking or even singing this world into existence, a beautiful place for humanity to enjoy life-giving relationships with, with God and with ourselves and with each other and with the rest of the creation. And then comes this fall where humanity rejects God as the true king, and we decide that we want to be kings and queens of our own lives, right? And then in the beginning of the Israel story, in Genesis 12, God calls this guy Abram and says, I'm going to make you this this great nation that's going to exist to be a blessing to the world. And through your family, God would say to the Israelites, that I'm going to bring about a savior that ultimately will make things right again. So turn with me real quick. We won't do this uh, this whole chunk, but in Revelation 21 and 22, which I know that's a passage that may freak some of you out with images of Kirk Cameron or things <laughs> like that. But, uh, but there's, there's this beautiful thing that happens at the end of, of the story of the Bible. In a lot of ways, it's a story that, starts, uh, that ends back where it starts. If you see the Bible as one big narrative, in the beginning there's this garden where life is good and, and relationships are rich and there's justice and there's peace. And then at the end of the story, it comes back around to that. And so there's this vision that we're given of where the history of humanity is headed. And it starts in Revelation 21 and 22. <clears throat> he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Verse 5, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. We'll stop there. This incredible vision that John one of the early apostles is given of what God is eventually going to do one day is to bring heaven to earth to answer Jesus prayer that things on earth would be as they are in heaven and he ends in verse 5 with Jesus saying <clears throat> um, write these down for these words are trustworthy and true when do you need to say that these words I'm telling you are trustworthy and true when it's really hard to believe right when I'm trying to convince you that I know this sounds crazy, I know this sounds too good to be true, but I'm telling you, this is what God is up to in the world. He is making everything new. That this story that started in the garden with justice and peace and shalom, the way things are supposed to be, with right relationships, God's saying, I'm making things new again. We're going to bring about a new reality. And for us, this is incredibly hard to believe, right? And it's, in fact, it sounds like foolishness to the world. Even in the midst of the week that we're in right now, right? With hurricanes, with terrorism, with famine, with all the brokenness that we see happening in our city, around the country, around the world. For us to hold on to a hope and say we believe that one day the world is going to be made new again. One day things are going to be put together. And that human history has a redemptive ending. That one day the world will be made right again. This is the hope that the Bible gives us. And it's a crazy picture, right? It's hard to hold on to. But in brief, the reason that we as followers of Jesus live with this crazy sounding hope is because there's a time in our human history where we've gotten a glimpse of God's new world. There was a moment just over 2,000 years ago when God showed up in our world in the person of Jesus and and heaven began to touch earth. And so notice what he describes here. In the new world that God's making, there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, and even no more death. That's the way things are supposed to be, right? And what happened when Jesus showed up? Well, where, where he saw sickness, he said, that's not how it is in God's world. And so he heals. When he sees mourning, he says, that's not how it's going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. And so he brings comforting. And when he sees death, he goes, there's no death in the new world. And so he raises people from the dead. As I've told you before, Jesus is terrible at going to funerals. Every funeral he does, he just raises somebody from the dead, right? He goes around and this whole, this whole vision begins, the seeds of it begin to be planted within the soil of, of our history. And even his own death itself is overcome as God raises him from the dead and starts this new, this new era of the mission. And this church is born that we are called to be resurrection people. We are called to be people who partner with God. Following Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, to to live into this new future, this new reality. That yes, things are broken. Things are messed up. Within me, within us, around the world. But that's not how this story ends. Death doesn't have the final word. And one day, God is going to make everything new. And so we, at the end of the day, go, we have a God who is on a mission to make everything new. That's the God we follow, and we get to not only be recipients of that mission, but we also are invited to be participants in it. And so the question then is, how does this play out in relation to what Jesus accomplishes in his life and in his death. And I know you're really going to tell this story, but let me tell it real quick. you can tell it. I am going to tell it, yeah. and then you get to figure out what to say. Um, <laughs> I first visited Antioch about seven years ago when we were on vacation in Bend. And um, we were living over in Corvallis and we were spending a weekend here, and so we stopped by a service on Sunday morning and when you guys were up at Summit. And I remember sitting in the back row, and I, and I knew Ken, um, but I'd never heard him preach before. And he walks out, and he goes, let me tell you why I don't like the cross. And that's how he starts. And then he goes on this rant for the next 15 or 20 minutes on why, as a Christian pastor, he doesn't like the cross. Um, well, this morning, uh, I don't know what you want to say in response to that, because... (laughs) Guilty. (laughs) Guilty, all right. (laughs) (laughs) I found it incredibly intriguing, and it was a compelling argument because what he was saying is that when we think of the cross, when we see the cross as a representation of the Christian faith, we have this really narrow, truncated view of what it means. But we've been in conversation now for several years about what's the cross really all about? And so uh, Ken's going to share a little bit about how we've been thinking about that.
1: Yeah, so when you guys were hearing Pete talk about what might be familiar words from Revelation, that there's no tears, there's no death, these kinds of things, what, what ought to come up, right, is this sense of good news. Like, man, that's, that's exciting. That's a picture that, that's desirable. That's something that makes me want to be there. Um, it's good news. And good news, like light, emanates out, doesn't it? Like what, when you take that word, that news of where things are going because of who God is, and you take that into any conversation, any room, any place, you use it in any language, it emanates, does it not? Like it's it's good news, and so uh, I did I did do that. So Pete, <laughs> Pete remembers only the um, bad things, um, like like any like any good friend, yeah, uh, and. And I walked out and started with, um, here's why I don't like the cross, which was, I realized after the fact, um, for all the people that had worn jewelry that morning, you know, of a cross or cross earrings, um, probably made them feel uncomfortable. And and my whole goal in being a pastor early on was to to not be um, so mature that people felt judged. I I really wanted to create space for grace, so I, that's a joke. Um, (laughs) Laughter I didn't ever choose immaturity. It just happened to me. Um, here's, a brief, here's a brief shot at that, and I think it's incredibly important because today is the first day in 11 years that there's been a cross at Antioch. Um, some of you guys are ready to throw stones at me, but I, I, uh, the early symbol that the Christians had for their community and for Jesus and, and for the Father was an ichthus. It was a fish that they would draw oftentimes on the ground with their foot so that they could cover it up um, and hide in some sense. Uh, later on, when, when it was more permissible, you'd see mosaic floors that they're still unearthing over there in, in, uh, in Israel and up around Turkey that have this fish symbol always there, Jesus the fisherman. Um, the Ichthus was simply in Greek, uh, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. So, you get this idea of what God is doing in the world through Jesus Christ, his son, who became the Savior. Uh, the cross, much later, did this thing that, as people would see on the way to Jerusalem with their, their cousins and uncles and, and kinsmen, really, hung on these, these horrific torture devices as a way of, of manifesting the oppression that the Romans had going for the the Jewish people. This cross was was not something they were excited about for a long time, and it wasn't until a couple hundred years later that it begins to show up a little bit more. And then there's a dominant event which takes and elevates the cross to the primary symbol. And that's when Constantine uh, was fighting a battle to unify the Roman Empire, and this is in, in basically 313, And he goes to bed one night, and he has a vision, and it's a vision of the cross, and he hears, in this sign, you shall conquer. In other words, uh, this sign, this symbol is a good luck charm, or it's a lot like the next day he's going to play the Super Bowl, and they're both praying to, to God and saying, you know, would you side with my team, if you will. And after that, the Edict of Milan comes out where now all of a sudden it's not forbidden to be a Christian. And shortly thereafter, the Christian faith becomes the mandated religion of the Roman Empire. And of course, this symbol that Constantine had his victory through the cross is, is, is the symbol that, that goes forward as the dominant symbol. And that follows kind of into the Catholic Church uh, and then ultimately into the Protestant faith. And, and that's what we've grown up with this dominant symbol of the cross and it's not that the cross is not a part of the story it's what we do to the cross and so what we do is we say god is 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 bringing about this good news and and bringing salvation through the cross what we do is we always put a for me at the back end of that so we take what was implied in god's salvation and we make it the direct object We take good news, which like light has arrows that go out in every direction and it emanates and we bend it back around and kind of point it at ourselves. And that's the the issue that I was kind of bringing forward when I talked about the cross. We've got Colossians up here and this might help us kind of see it a little bit more clearly, but this is an extended text on the gospel and it says the Son, Jesus, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased, this is the good news, to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Christ, and then through him, through Christ, to reconcile back to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, in other words, all things, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." So the good news is that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ Jesus. We'll get that uh, to that just a, a little bit more later. Um, and that he did this through Jesus' death on the cross. So that cross represents for us theologically all or the totality of God's work in this world for us, for others, for creation, for the living, for the dead. It's all covered by, by what Jesus did on the cross, the gospel, the good news. And so this cross that we have here um, is basically now been the culmination of, of what we've been talking about. Um, justice is not a topic that we talk about in the church. It's a paradigm through which we understand the world. When Jesus talked about people divorcing other people, he says you cannot do that unless in this case, uh, the case of infidelity or some kind of injustice. Why? Because then you're going to make this person economically vulnerable. Their children are going to be put into a position where they're economically vulnerable. In society, they're going to be treated differently and you cannot do that. By the dictates of justice, unless there's a just cause. In other words, justice is a lens by which Jesus talked about other subjects, the vulnerable, the poor, whatever you, you, you want to kind of put in there. And so when we've been talking about justice at Antioch, we've been really talking about the character of God and, and that Jesus is the justice of God. It's the justice of God that demanded that Jesus died and it's the justice of God through God's love that made uh, the sacrifice that allowed us to be reunited and reconciled back in with him. It's the justice of God that, that wants the best for the poor or the vulnerable. It's the justice of God that wants us to be fair or equitable. It's the justice of God that wants us to live in rightness according to the way God intended for us to live in this world. It's the justice of God that desires that those made in His image would reflect His image and His character. So justice is this broad category. The definition of justice... The same as the word, the English word righteousness. And you guys have heard me talk about this before, but if we had a Spanish Bible or a French Bible, there wouldn't be justice or righteousness. It would just be, in the Spanish, justicia, same concept. So, justice and righteousness is a right relationship with God, self, others, and creation. And so we started saying, what if we just flipped the self and the others around? And we took this category that we had at Antioch since the beginning, that basically um, Acts 1-7, you're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And we would say that was basically three spheres. That there's at home and in the backyard, and then kind of to the rest of the world, those three spheres. What if we just flipped self and others, and we put that kind of into the cross as a symbol um, or a driving metaphor? And so you can see it now, and, and we'll go through it. But simply, that justice and righteousness, when we're reconciled to God, it means we have a right relationship with God. That's the first and primary thing. With others, which takes the shape of city, church, and then the world, and then self and creation, the rest of creation, God's creation. Uh, the person who will say it best is Rick Gerhardt, but we were created, men and women, as one of the six days of creation. So we do a great injustice when we talk about people and human things, and then we say, well, then there's that whole creation thing. Creation includes us. We are a part of God's creation. Um, so a right relationship with God as we move out in the different spheres of the world, self, and then creation. So this cross doesn't, doesn't kind of bring along this individualized view of salvation, that God just loves me or the good news is for me or God saved me, one kind of particular self. This is an expansive view of the cross, When God was bringing the good news, it was like he was creating a landscape that has the snow-capped mountains, the blue sky, the lakes, the high mountain lakes, uh, the dirt and the soil that goes from here to there, the flowers in the field. And when we think of the cross only as it relates to us, it's like picking up one piece of dirt, putting it in a little vial, and then hanging around our neck and walking around and people going, what does that represent? It represents this amazing good news for me. And we, we tell a very deficient gospel if we don't understand what God was doing in Christ through, as it said in Colossians, the cross. The cross is this beautiful landscape, and the symbol of the cross for us ought to be this witness that we have that God is at work in the world, a loving God, and that through His Son who has the supremacy, He has rescued and saved us because Jesus has died on the cross to forgive our sins Uh, the last thing simply there is that if you go to the old testament and you read about god's salvation it's almost confusing because it always has this corporate element Um, we're not just saving larry or or mildred from hurricane harvey and mold in that person's house we're trying to go help all the people in houston because of hurricane harvey does that make sense Like, when we talk about God's salvation, it's this broad, corporate, full context. And the Old Testament bears that all the way out, even into the New. But somehow our language gets truncated, and we want to always kind of particularize it. Um, And in doing so, we rob it of its glory, and we rob Christ of, of that supremacy or the glory, that He is the head of the church, which is His body. So these are the boxes This is the cross. Sweet.
0: And so we, if you haven't picked it up by now, are making an attempt to articulate the vision that God has given us as a church by summarizing the gospel of Jesus with this phrase, the reconciliation of all things. This is what God is up to in the world. This is why Jesus came and suffered and died and rose from the dead and sent his spirit and commissioned his church. This is what God is up to in the world, the reconciliation of all things. And therefore, this is our vision as a church as well. Now, obviously, this isn't a vision that we can accomplish. This is something only Jesus can do. But he's inviting us to be part of it. And so there's language that talks about how God is reconciling all things to himself through Christ, including us, that we get to be made whole or new again with God. But we are also then invited to join him on this mission of reconciliation in the world. So I won't go there, but in 2 Corinthians 5, there's this place where Paul famously says that since we are the recipients of God's reconciling work, we are now, as the church, as the people of God, invited and commanded and sent to be ministers or agents of reconciliation in the world. Agents who are waging a decisive peace against the brokenness, against the evil, against the corruption, the injustice within ourselves, within our communities, and around the world. And so Antioch hasn't had a vision statement before. We've had a mission statement, which we will continue to hold on to as it informs how we go about partnering with God in this vision. But this morning we're introducing this vision statement, the reconciliation of all things, summarizing the good news that God has not left us. That he's at work in the world. We see it in the cross and we continue to see it today. Which I would just start with the fact, like, I would love for the gospel to actually sound like good news again. Most of the gospel presentations I've heard or given throughout my life sound like, gosh, I hope that's not true. Because that sounds like bad news. That's That's not how the Bible talks about it. The gospel is good news. And so, I know we're doing a lot of theology, but we want to make sure that you know that this is deeply rooted in the character of God, in the mission of God, in the scriptures that we've been entrusted. And uh, we want to show you a video, two minutes that Paul Krause and Nate Gerhardt gave us to uh, try to kind of invite our church into this mission together. And
2: and, uh, we'll go ahead and show that. What comes to mind when you picture a cross? A nice piece of bling? A sweet tattoo? Or maybe a relic from the past like an ancient cathedral? Or maybe even the steeple on your grandma's church? Or maybe you remember seeing something like this, where the cross is a way to escape earth and go off to heaven when we die. Did you ever wonder how we're supposed to get over that top part? But the way the Bible talks about the cross is way bigger than that. In Colossians 1, Paul says that Jesus' death on the cross was God's way of waging a decisive peace in a broken and ripped up world. Think about this. If anything was possible, what kind of world would you want to live in? Pretty much everyone would say we would want a world without war or poverty or disease or racism or abuse or pollution. It would be a world full of peace, and wholeness, and beauty, and justice, and meaning, and love. A world where we would enjoy rich, life-giving relationships with God, and ourselves, and others, and the rest of creation. He calls it the reconciliation of all things. Through Jesus, God has made a way for us to be reconciled. To himself, to ourselves, to each other in our church, in our city, around the world, and to the rest of his creation. Paul calls this the gospel, the good news that God is bringing about the reconciliation of all things, and he invites us to be a part of it.
1: Kind of kind of fun to see artwork um, coming out of our own community. Uh, past interns, Paul just grabbed an X-Acto knife and and some cardboard and just kind of went to town on this. Um, back when we were first talking about this and how we could make the cross look, and so it's kind of fun to see that. Um, but the reconciliation of all things, the first pushback that I think would come, and maybe the only pushback, would be that sounds expansive. Um, It sounds like it might include too much, or it sounds risky or dangerous because does that mean, and then there's a series of questions that might follow that. Um, And let me just reiterate a couple things. We are a conservative church uh, theologically. Scripture is our ultimate authority. Uh, We stand underneath it seeking to understand and apply. We don't stand above Scripture trying to make it say what we want to say. But what we're fighting with, I think, that tension is something that we've inherited that's been a, a part of the sociological culture of the church for quite some time. In fact, I think it's always been there. The easiest way to define where somebody stands or whether, whether they agree with you or not uh, or whether they're on your team or not is to ask questions that, that pin them in by what they're against. That's the easiest way to to kind of locate somebody on a map, to pinpoint them. So you see it with Jesus, right? Jesus, are you against this? This woman was caught in adultery, and you know what the Scriptures say. Jesus, um, why don't you pick your, your favorite Scripture so that we can evaluate whether the learned people of our day would agree with your answer or not, because by picking one, you in some sense, negate the other ones that we probably think are important. Uh, Jesus, what do you think about this? Jesus, what do you think about that? And they were always trying to play lawyer games with him. And it was the lawyers, the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. And I think we do the same thing today. We try and figure out what people are against so we know whether or not we agree with them. And if we agree with them, then they're like us and therefore safe Because it's comfortable when the people that we're around um, are a lot like us. Uh, We're a herd creature. It gets a little bit different or a little bit uncomfortable when we're in a pack with people that actually have some different beliefs than us. And so we ask those questions. We were talking about a recent document that came out, um, Evan and I. And a document came out, and it was really about drawing the circle and trying to define who was out and who was in. And I asked Evan what he thought about it, and he goes, you know, it's really interesting. The thought that comes to my mind as I read this is that it's just tone deaf. Tone deaf meaning with, with where people are at and with where the heart of God, you know, according to Evan uh, in that moment, is at in the world and what God cares about, this, this whole Drawing kind of a circle and trying to describe uh, what the people look like who are out and those who are in, it just feels strange or out of place or not along the lines of how Jesus would be answering those questions that came to him. Does that make sense? And so when we talk about the reconciliation of all things, we're really just talking about we have a God who is love and that in his love sent his son. And that in his son coming and loving us so greatly that he was willing to go to the cross to die for our sins. So that we could be reconciled according to the plan of God. And that this is so great that it's capital G gospel good news. That when we talk about who we are and why we come on a Sunday morning. That it's not always going to be a circle and trying to define what's in and what's out. Even though that might make us feel more comfortable. Because we can locate someone else, or we can locate whether I want to sit in that section with the people that agree with me, or maybe over in this section with, you know, the people that are a bit stranger, you know, or like, if we're going to be around Jesus, we're going to hear a lot of expansive, uncomfortable love words, right? Um, And in hearing that, here's the crazy thing, um, what we hear patterns us over time, doesn't it? I mean, Paul says it. we don't love because we're just loving people. We love because he first loved us. In other words, that love begets love and grace begets, lo- uh, begets grace. And so when we're around Christ and we're experiencing that, that kind of light and that good news and that love, that that's going to begin to shape and pattern us, and that's called discipleship, and, and we become a little bit more like little Christ in this world. You see, I grew up thinking that church was like a timeline where you just have one line and you have these little tick marks. And that by going to church, you're just doing a good job of ticking off time. Like your attendance is really good. You're marking time the way you should be marking time. But it's actually a graph with time. uh, Let me see the way you guys are looking at it. So growth and time, and that through time we should be growing. We should be maturing. Paul talks about this. Why, after all this time, are you still on milk? You should be on solid food. In other words, that as you're ticking time on Sunday mornings, that the, the Christ that you're encountering, the love that you're receiving, more and more into the image and likeness of Christ, that we're growing. And the judgment doesn't do that for us. When we get together and reaffirm that we're, we're against the same things, rather than getting together and encouraging each other With the grace and love and forgiveness of Christ, I don't know that that what is supposed to happen actually happens. So here's the, the interesting thought is that we are reconciled into a family of reconcilers. We are reconciled into a family of reconcilers. When we come into a family, Whether it's by adoption, by birth, by foster, whatever it it looks like, we begin to be shaped and patterned according to that family. So Pete and I were talking about this recently. It's interesting now that my kids are getting older. um, The sin nature is manifesting more and more. Um, It's a joke too. Um, (laughs) When I go to other churches, I try to leave the dry humor. Um, No, the older my kids get, the interesting thing is the more they naturally desire to jump in and be a part of this church. So even Ashlyn jumps in and and goes to the nursery, doesn't go to her Sunday school class. She always wants to go to the nursery and help with kids, uh, as does Sarah. Mary Joy is now certified not only on camera one, camera two, uh, the lights and the computer, um, but pretty soon she's going to take Kip's job. Esther beginning to be involved with the, the worship team and music in the church, and, and the two of them working with Jarrell in the high school group with the Guard of Music. In other words, when, when you are a part of a family, you naturally begin to do what that family does. And when we say the vision of Antioch, uh, of Antioch is to be a, a part of the reconciliation of all things, we're simply saying we're, we're a, a family that wants to be where God is at. We want to find ourselves where the Father is, at His work, and we want to kind of be a part of that work as well. And so we're just defining that everybody should have a ministry in the church and a mission in the world, that love defines us, that grace defines us, that this, this community isn't just marking time, but we're growing together into this gospel. So the question is, what does that look
0: like? What does it mean to be reconciled to a family of reconcilers? And this is where the conversation begins to call each of you into this mission. Not to simply be passive uh, observers of the church paid professional staff that's trying to do this. this is, that's exactly the opposite of the vision. But the vision is that as a family reconciled to become reconcilers, agents of reconciliation, that this mission would be carried out not just on Sunday mornings but seven days a week. And so we've articulated a set of six practices. One practice corresponding to each box or domain of reconciliation, representing all things. And this morning is simply a brief introduction to this idea of of practicing reconciliation. But in the weeks, months, and years to come, this is where we hope to see God move us more and the kind of disciples he calls us to be. And so the first one is the, the idea of being reconciled to God as we're invited and commanded is the practice of communion that we want to practice as a way of life this idea of abiding with Christ, of connecting with God through whatever means he's given us. Obviously, through things like prayer and worship and scripture and solitude. But we also know God has invited us to connect with him in a whole bunch of other ways as well. And so for us to be ministers of reconciliation means first that we participate in being reconciled to God and having our relationship with him uh, strengthened and matured and fortified. The next sphere is self the idea that we are in a relationship with ourself that is damaged and needs to be repaired and needs to be put back together. And so the practice is formation, that we are being formed by God into people who bear the image of his son. And so our way of putting us is it's becoming who we are. It's dealing with our past. It's understanding our story and the false narratives and the false identities that we attach to ourselves. And instead, stepping into the beautiful freedom of receiving an identity from Jesus and learning to actually become our most authentic self. The next sphere is church. This community here that's gathered on Sundays, but also that scatters the other six days as well. The practice is to live as a community, to share life deeply as a family. That we wouldn't see ourselves simply as people that attend the same service on Sundays, but that we truly would experience life as brothers and sisters in Christ. That that would spill out into our weeks, and that would be reflected in our schedule and in our budget, and in the way that we conduct our relationships and live in. A city and so it 's the practice of community fourthly is the practice of hospitality living as missionaries and agents of reconciliation within our city within Bend or wherever else we find ourselves in central Oregon saying what does it look like to truly be a neighbor what does it mean to love our neighbors as we love ourselves what does it mean to to bear witness to christ 's reign in in our literal neighborhoods but also in the places where we work and hang out and go to school and that sort of thing. So what does it look like for us to practice hospitality of opening our lives and opening our homes and opening ourselves uh, and giving ourselves away to others as God has for us. Fifthly is this practice of justice in the world. We practice justice by remembering the poor, which is really a junk drawer term for all those that are oppressed, all those that are suffering, all those that are abandoned, all those that are in need. Paul says, this is the one thing I ask of you, this early church, to remember the poor. And it's not just like in the back of your mind, but it's to reorient your life uh, around the realities of injustice and say, this has to call forth the church of Jesus. Right? And fifth or sixthly, finally, is the practice of Sabbath. When it comes to be agents of reconciliation within the rest of creation, from the very beginning in Genesis, the command is to create space to celebrate the good, to enjoy the life that God has given us here on this on this planet. And so by instead of being crazy busy all the time, it's the practice of Sabbath and creating space to rest, to enjoy, to celebrate, and to remember that it is good, and one day, it's all going to be made new again. So this is introduction, obviously, but over, like I said, in in the weeks and months and years to come, this is our pursuit, that we would be a community of disciples that doesn't just agree with the idea of reconciliation, but it's actually shaping our lives, that we would become active participants in living out this mission here in Bend, around Central Oregon and wherever else we, we may go, that we are people committed to being reconciled to God and to ourselves to each other in the church and then sent out as agents of reconciliation to our cities, to the world, and to the rest of the creation. I'm convinced that for the church to be faithful to her mission, it takes everybody. That we are the missionary. You are the have been entrusted with this mission and invited to join God in what he's doing in the world. And so we are so excited to in- introduce these ideas to you this morning and to begin a journey together, and we hope that you'll come along. Ken's going to share a final thought and then lead us into a time of reflection.
1: One of the things um, that the theologians have always talked about is just that if you're trying to understand an interpretation of Scripture, and there are variant interpretations that the best way to understand if, if you're on the right track is how it harmonizes with the rest of Scripture. So it's called the rule of Scripture, if you will. Um, and this is a vision that we're calling you into. And I, I want to, in some ways, ask, ask you, does this jive with your understanding of Scripture? And I'll just read uh, out of Isaiah 51 because I think it helps. But it says this, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. That be us. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him, he was only a man, and I blessed him and made him many. And the Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord, "'Joy and gladness will be found in her, "'thanksgiving and the sound of singing. "'Listen to me, my people. "'Hear me, my nation. "'Instruction will go out from me. "'My justice will become a light to the nations. "'My righteousness draws draws near speedily. "'My salvation is on the way, "'and my arm will bring justice to the nations. "'The islands will look to me and wait and hope for my arm.' Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke; the earth will wear out like a garment, and in its inhabitants die like flies. But my salvation will last forever, and my righteousness will never fail. Um, this vision we're calling you into isn't a cute expression that's that's like a corporate kind of mantra or lo, uh, logo or slogan that our slogan is better than your slogan, that you might come and buy our product. It's simply our best shot at finding the biblical language to express the biblical vision. Does that make sense? And I think that um, in closing, one of the questions that we ask a lot, because truth matters. Christians believe that truth matters because it does. Um, So one of the questions we always ask is, am I right? Am I right? Is my church right? If I'm sitting there listening, um, is Pete right? Is Ken right? Is this right? Uh, and I think I'd be remiss in not pointing out that what makes us right with God, first and foremost, is um, is Christ. Timothy Keller says it's grace that makes us just. Our justice doesn't come by our works. Our justice doesn't come by our our finely parsed out theology, and it certainly doesn't come from vision statements or slogans. What makes us just, first and foremost, is our relationship with Christ and that we receive His forgiveness. Um, We receive His forgiveness as the Lamb that was slain for us. And so as the, the worship team comes up and as is our habit as a church community, that we corporately remember and recognize and affirm that the good news starts outside of me and that I'm a participant in it and that this good news that starts outside of me is something that I can joyously seek to include other people into as I'm a witness to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, that I can be defined by my love, not by my judgment, that somehow I have a a, a Jesus or a Savior that's not just taking me somewhere but is changing me along the way. That all of this goodness is offered to us as the community of God. And so I'm going to pray for us. The band's going to come. You can come forward and worship and take communion. You can stay and just sing and worship that way. If you want prayer, you can go to the exit signs and you will be able to receive prayer and nourishment for your soul that way. Father, um, I love this church. I love these people. My family is in this church too. Um, Father, let this church be blessed as we seek in faith to follow you, to be obedient. Um, Chastise us if you need to. Guide us, lead us, teach us. But in the end, we simply want to be found where you are. That is our one great desire, um, is to know you and to make you known. I pray for this city that in so many ways it looks shiny but is desperately in need uh, of knowing you, that there is a need, a hunger for grace, Uh, that there are people that are depressed or anxious or afraid or persecuted that need to know they're not alone, that you have not forgotten them, that we are a part of that. And so, Father, as we find you, may we also be sent out Uh, and be representatives of your love to those around us. We ask for that um, in simpleness of faith and, and in only the strength that you can provide. In Jesus' name, amen.